Hello and welcome to the first episode of PodPit, the podcast about podcasts, and I'm your host, George Grimwood. In September of this year, I went to Los Angeles to the LA PodFest, the Los Angeles Podcast Festival. The second time I've been, the last time I was back in 2013, and on both occasions, it's just such a fantastic sense of community, a three-day festival representing not just the West Coast of America in terms of uh, predominantly comedy podcasts, but also uh, represented by podcasts from Europe and from Australia. And something that is very apparent from the get-go, that in America, podcasting is a growing industry. And in the UK, we're still not sure what a podcast is. The interesting thing was asking a lot of people over in the States about podcasting and what they associate UK podcasting with. The main answer usually is the Ricky Gervais show, which essentially did pioneer podcasting over in the UK. But since then, it's been very difficult really for any podcast beyond that to break out. I mean, if you look at the UK podcast chart, it's mainly recycled radio from the BBC. So I think there remains to be a struggle worldwide in that respect. But the best thing about podcasting is that more and more original ideas are coming out of it in terms of serialized drama and sketch comedy and such amazing niche conversations. I love podcasting. And although I'm relatively new to hosting as such, I have been a devotee, a listener for a good few years now. And when I was in Los Angeles, I took the opportunity to try and meet people, uh, some some of which who I'd been listening to for a number of years on their own shows, and inquire as to their thoughts on the world of podcasting. This podcast is in part aiming to inform you, the listener. If you're not familiar with podcasts, the question is, how did you get to this one? But that's not the point. This is a podcast about podcasts. And aside from interviewing various people involved in the world of podcasting or talking about their experiences in podcasting, either as host, guest, someone behind the scenes, or indeed listeners. We will also be reviewing podcasts along the way and hopefully giving you some kind of a how-to guide if you are interested in hosting a podcast. In this first episode, I decided to have a conversation with the fantastic Mr. Cliff Nestroff. I'd met Cliff previously when I went to Los Angeles in 2013, and upon my return in 2015, he had a book on the way. And it is out now, highly recommended, critically acclaimed, and recently released opus, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, available on Amazon and at all good bookstores. Cliff received a career boost when he appeared as a guest on Mark Maron's prestigious podcast, WTF. But he's also an experienced interviewer himself, having spoken to many comedy and television legends as part of his extensive and thorough research for the book, as well as for his excellent site, classicshowbiz.blogspot.com. Therefore, not only did I want to know about how his life and career had changed through his appearance as a guest on WTF, but I also needed some advice on how to conduct an interview. Although I'm not necessarily new to the world of podcasting, I am new to being the person asking the questions. But in this case, for a nervous novice such as myself, Cliff was the perfect guest. So we sat down in a booth on a busy afternoon in Cantor's Deli, and before we began discussing podcasting, we had a little chat about sandwiches. Cliff, hi. Hey, George. What's up? Well, good. We're here. We are in Cantor's Deli, and Cantor's Delicatessen, founded in 1955, Los Angeles's answer to Lindy's in New York, except 
never quite made it there, but a Los Angeles landmark open 24 hours a day. Everybody comes through Cantor's sooner or later, if not all the time. Today's episode is brought to you by Cantor's. Cantor's, overpriced food and mediocrity since 1955. You can't really go wrong with that. Which, uh, what's your favorite sandwich here? I always order the same thing, except today I didn't, because you were picking up the tab, so I uh, uh, ordered something that was like twice the price. But uh, normally, I order the Buck Benny, which is named for comedian Jack Benny and his Wild West character, which in radio in the 30s and 40s, Buck Benny was a nickname given to him by Andy Devine. Do you know who that is? No. Andy Devine was a character actor in old westerns. He's in a million westerns. And I don't know if I could do his voice without yelling, but he had a f- I can't do it. No. He had a voice like this. Hiya, Buck. And uh, I think he, he did the voice of one of the bullets in the movie uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Ah. There's one of those bullets has a wheezy voice. And uh, that's, I think, the last thing Andy Devine did, unless it's somebody doing an impression of Andy Devine. Anyways, uh, they, used to, they used to do Wild West spoofs or Western movie spoofs on the Jack Benny program, and they would call him Buck Benny. So there's a sandwich here, which is just a wiener on a bun and a bunch of sauerkraut, and it's called the Buck Benny. I usually order that. They used to have a different menu here. Now they've streamlined it, but there used to be a Danny Thomas sandwich and a Danny Thomas number two. For some reason, they named two sandwiches for Danny Thomas. Danny Thomas one and Danny Thomas two. Terrible sandwiches. They were just like uh, cold cuts, uh, disgusting, horrible, and they got rid of uh, one of them. I can't remember which one. Uh... Yeah, but I usually get the Buck Benny to answer your question, George. I only found out yesterday what grits were, which basically just seem like they're kind of lubricant to keep the keep keep you eating. Grits? Mm. I thought grits was like uh, hash browns. I I thought they were. I thought it was. I thought it was like kind of a greens kind of thing. But this was literally a goop in a in a bowl. Uh, it was kind of like a very buttery mash, but without any texture. It was right. Or right. rice pudding, almost, actually. Right, 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 right. And it just seemed like tasteless sort of lubrication to keep you eating the chicken and the waffles and everything else. This is a Roscoe's chicken. Well, Roscoe's chicken and waffles is not true soul food. It is really kind of catered to the, to the tourist, and it's kind of like also overpriced and not the greatest. It's fun to go to, and you should buy one of those T-shirts with the chicken and the waffles on it. But other than that, you know, it's not like going to the Deep South or, or anything. So is there a chance that no one knows what grits are, and because the tourists don't know, they just decided to make whatever this was? No, call I, think they, I think that is what grits are. They just may not prepare them that great. But if you go to south-central Los Angeles the next time you're in town, there's a lot of good soul food that you can hunt out. There's some great places. I like Phillips Barbecue at Crenshaw and Adams, which is sort of a famous intersection in uh, hip-hop lore. It gets referenced a lot, and don't know why. I don't know that anything particularly uh, famous happened there, but Phillips Barbecue is there, and that place is great. They've got great collard greens, and they've got cornbread, and I'm sure they have grits, but mostly it's about the ribs at uh, Phillips Barbecue. Well, when we do our follow-up interview upon my return, we'll, we'll eat there. Yeah, when you, and when you're doing your soul food podcast, when you branch out to that uh, genre, definitely. There's something to be said for a bit of field reporting in, in restaurants. And, of course, we've got the atmosphere in the background. Yeah, and we're doing that right now. You know, there was a comedy record or a partial comedy record in the 50s called Live from the Stage Delicatessen. And the Stage Deli was like Lindy's. It was like the Carnegie Deli. Those were the three big delis in New York in the 50s where all the comedians hung out and is sort of like paid homage to in Broadway Danny Rose, the Woody Allen movie. Uh 
but there's this record that's recorded live from somebody's table at the stage delicatessen and all these comedians kind of come in and out joey bishop uh insult comedian jackie leonard who we, i pointed out to you on the wall at bordner's yep. the other day uh the original don rickles uh but it's mostly just the sound of clattering uh, uh silverware and dishes and uh and the owner max asnes of the stage deli uh uh, uh, in his malapropped English telling corny jokes. But it's kind of, you know, there is something about the atmosphere of a, of a restaurant doing a field recording that's kind of, I think, kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I think occasionally, if, if if we get to a point in this conversation where I'm stumped for words or you're stumped for words, we can just literally just hover the microphone in the air and just let... Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm never stumped for words. You haven't asked me a question and I haven't uh, shut up yet. But, yeah, I mean, we could... That's fine. You, you know. can just raise your finger and say "stumped for words," and that's the signal to uh, get so- some field noise here. Soak it all up. We're right behind the Busser's station, so I'm sure you'll hear uh, plenty of uh, racket. Well, I think the thing is, I mean, one of the main reasons we're talking today, one of two, one of two of the main reasons we're talking today, is um, that I'm I'm venturing out interviewing people, and I haven't really done this before, and. Uh, as a uh, vehement interviewer, someone who has been doing it for a very long time, I believe. Well, I never really uh, uh, interview people for broadcast ever, but in terms of research, yeah, I've interviewed many, many people, many show people, um, mo- mostly for the purposes of information more than entertainment. But then I would transcribe the interviews and post them online, and find I found out that they are entertainment, mostly because the people I'm talking to are usually very uh, vulgar, profane throw all their old friends under the bus and uh, people find that uh, uh, compelling and by the time this recording comes out uh, your book would have been out as well, well remains on to the be market out. yeah well even now at the time of recording you can still uh, order it and you'll be able to order it from the same place as when this comes out which is Amazon and your local bookseller it's called The Comedians Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels and the History of American Comedy from Grove Press which uh, yeah will be on the market now. I can't wait. I sincerely hope that I'm able to get it over in the UK as well. And uh, You will be. Yeah, it'll be everywhere. Excellent. And maybe one day we can get you over for some signings. Oh, that would be nice, yeah. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Rally and get Cliff over, and we'll uh, have a big old signing. Sounds like a plan. Um, one of the reasons uh, I'm here is to interview about interviews, because I, I have no experience, as you can gather straight away. And I just wanted your advice, really, as well, on on how one goes about talking to other people in terms of gaining such information, and what what are the best, what's the best way of going going about getting in contact with someone, arranging an interview, and what's what's the process essentially? Well, in terms of arranging an interview, I don't know that there is a best process the uh, uh, ideally the person you want to interview has the internet and an email address because you can really compose your thoughts uh, properly in print rather than cold calling somebody you know and I've certainly been handed many of the phone number uh, uh, of somebody notable like their home number and that's always kind of uncomfortable without a, a, a liaison to help set it up you know, somebody gave me Jonathan Winter's phone number once, and I never called it, and then he died. But somebody also gave me Carl Reiner's home number, and uh, I was like, I don't want to disturb him at home, you know? But then somebody said, well, man, if you don't call him, he's going to die, and then you'll regret it, you know? 
So I was like, all right, you're right. So I cold called Carl Reiner. And I said, uh, Mr. Reiner, my name is Cliff Nesteroff. I'm writing this book. And I was wondering if you might be available to talk about some fairly obscure things people don't usually ask you about, like the comedy venue, Billy Gray's Bandbox, and the Broadway show that you were in with Buddy Hackett in the 40s. And, and he goes, whoa, 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 how did you get this number? This is my home number. I, I'm very busy right now. I'm very busy right now. Maybe another time. And he hung up. So exactly what I feared might happen if I cold call somebody is exactly what happened. Mm. So that person who told me to, to call him because he might die is an idiot, you know. But so I don't recommend that. It's nice if people have email. I deal with a lot of elderly people and a lot of them don't have email. So that's a little bit uh, frustrating or awkward. But I also interview a lot of forgotten, obscure people who are delighted that anybody would have any interest in them. So I don't really have any advice in terms of how to secure an interview. I still, to this day, have trouble booking uh, live shows. Like right now, we're setting up events to promote my book, and it's, it's a nightmare because there's nothing in it for the guest. There's a lot in it for me, for these people to be my guest because it uh, bolsters the status of the event. But for the guest involved, they're not really getting paid. There's nothing in it for them. They have to be a fan of mine in order to want to do it. So it's a little bit complex. I don't have any advice there. In terms of interviewing technique... You have to know how to read a person, which you can do pretty quickly. Um, the best interview subject is somebody uh, uh, like myself who just talks, you know. And then the worst subject is somebody who doesn't talk. But you have to learn how to shut up and, and understand that some people take longer to talk than others and not to cut people off. So sometimes it sounds like somebody has finished their thought and they're not. And that's, that was a big learning curve for me. If I listen to old recordings of my initial interviews, it's me following up before they're done answering, you know. And, uh, or they're talking and I'm going, uh, yeah, but, uh-huh, but what, yeah, what, trying to cut in. And then I learned to just shut up and sit back and listen and let there be a gap of silence to ensure that they were done speaking and I usually knew they were done speaking when they said, hello, are you still there? And I said, yeah, I'm just listening, you know, which is fine. You know, that's better than cutting somebody off. So that's really the key is, is reading people. Some people are very tight-lipped and some people are very garrulous. The garrulous ones are the gifts. For the tight-lipped ones, that's when you want preparation. You want to have pages of notes ready to go because some people will only give you yes or no answers and then you'll run out of notes in five minutes and you don't want that. So it's best to be over-prepared for your interviews. Larry King always brags that he never prepares for an interview. And with all due respect to Larry King, it shows that he never prepares. Like, he's, I don't know how he, he gained his status. He's, he's dreadful at interviewing. But with a good guest, it can still be a great conversation. But be prepared. Have more notes than necessary. Um, if you're doing the, the interview live or on camera, don't use any notes. Have it all in your head. But if you're doing it over the phone, if it's for radio, have your notes there. Sometimes you won't even get to the notes. You'll just have a great conversation. But with other people, the notes will be very uh, essential. Um, and for the garrulous people, you'll, you'll only need three or four notes, and, and it doesn't matter if you don't get to it. But for those that don't speak much, it's important that you're fully prepared so you can sort of carry the ball so to speak fill in the blanks yeah and in that respect is there any particular interview that you've had where if you can give me an example of an interview where you 
had someone who doesn't say a thing, for example. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Marty Allen. You know who that is? He was in a comedy team in the... Well, he's in a number of comedy teams, but his main comedy team was in the 60s from 1960 till 66 with this guy, Steve Rossi. And after Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis broke up, they had been the biggest comedy team. The closest thing to them after that was Allen and Rossi. And they had a huge amount of uh, best-selling records in the 60s. Headline Vegas were on every TV show from What's My Line to The Tonight Show to Hollywood Squares to Mike Douglas to Merv Griffin. They really weren't very good. They weren't that funny, but they filled the vacuum. They were really kind of corny. But Marty Allen had this tremendous history, and he had been in three comedy teams that kind of failed prior to uh, Steve Rossi. So I interviewed him over the phone. He was 90. I I think he's still alive as of recording, and I think he must be 93 now, 94. And I said, yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Allen, you were in a uh, a comedy team in 1950 in Pittsburgh with this guy named Tiny Wolf. And he goes, yeah, so? And I was like, well, what, what, uh, uh," it kind of threw me off. And I was like, "Uh, uh, well, what, what can you tell me about that? It was just a team. That's it. I was like, all right. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this guy, Mitch DeWood. You were in a comedy team with a guy named Mitch DeWood. Yeah, Mitch. Uh, What was his background? He was just a guy, singer. That's it. I go, well, you guys headlined uh, the Copacabana. You opened for Ella Fitzgerald, huh? He goes, "Uh, yeah, so what? Uh, It was not a good interview. Like that kind of a, a, a attitude. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why he, he. Maybe it was just his his demeanor. Maybe he just is not a warm guy or came across uh, brusque, and uh, is actually, you know, that being nice. I don't know. But I didn't like Marty Allen. I thought he was kind of a prick. It seems that as well that if someone's already agreed to do an interview in some capacity, then you'd expect them to be slightly open. But presumably that was a case where they might have had second thoughts or. Who knows? I really don't know. Uh, he, he was strange, you know. The other key, I think, to interviewing is to make the person comfortable, and then they will open up. But with a person like Marty Allen, I never had that opportunity. He, was, he made me uncomfortable, so there was no chance for me to make him comfortable at that point. I find people tend to open up if they realize that you really know who they are and know about their career and know you're not just phoning it in and you're not asking them the same questions. So I really do detailed research when I interview old comedians. So I'm asking them questions about things that nobody has asked them about. And I'm giving them information I've researched that they themselves have forgotten about. And it really kind of stimulates the the memory bank. And uh, I get great stories out of them. And once they realize that that's what's happening, that this isn't going to be just another interview, then I'm able to get some very candid statements about how they have regrets about their career or how they thought that, Bobby Darren was a scumbag or whatever it is, you know. I'm not saying he was a scumbag. It's just a random type of thing they may say. But that stuff is gold, you know. And when people are candid like that, and some people ask me, they're like, how do you get people to open up like that? They're saying all these salacious things, you know. And But I think it's just a matter of uh, slowly, in whatever small time frame that it's possible to, to do this, they become trusting and uh, comfortable and once they trust you then then you're then you're golden 
So with that in mind, if you could provide an example of an interview that has been very comfortable, relaxed, uh, a very open conversation. Well, I I, uh, forged a pretty good relationship with the late comedian Jack Carter, who was nobody's favorite comedian ever. Nobody ever was a Jack Carter fan, really. He held the record for most solo appearances of any comedian on The Ed Sullivan Show. But he was kind of a generic, hacky, corny, tuxedo comedian of a different era. You know, he came up in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, but nobody really cared for him. And when I first interviewed him, he was kind of brusque as well, actually, a little bit like Marty Allen initially. When I said, hey, I just watched you in an old sci-fi TV show called uh, Tales of Tomorrow, and he went, yeah, yeah, I did a lot of that crap, dramas anthology series mostly in new york you know he really wasn't into it but then i told him i was from vancouver and he goes oh my favorite city i used to play the cave supper club what was the name of that guy who ran the orchestra and i knew the name of the guy that ran the orchestra because his uh, son was a friend of mine i said oh that guy's name was fraser mcpherson he goes yes fraser mcpherson who was always rehearsing what a darling man and then he kind of opened up well, over the course of the next three years, I would interview Jack Carter several times because he had this font of knowledge. He had the best memory of any senior citizen. He remembered every date, every show, going back to when he started stand-up in 1942. And when we were uh, talking on the phone, he was still working. He was appearing in episodes of New Girl and Shameless on, uh, on uh, Showtime. So we had a good uh, dynamic, and he was very candid with me about who he hated, about who he fucked, about everything. And without me prying for salacious subject matter, I got it, and I loved it. A lot of mafia stories. And he actually really contextualized the history of show business for me and, and kind of opened my eyes to this whole uh, show business culture in nightclubs in America in the 40s and 50s that has not really been written about. It's mentioned occasionally when people talk about Frank Sinatra, but as it pertained to comedians, people don't really talk about this era that Jack Carter lived. They tend to talk about the coffeehouse era, of Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, the Smothers Brothers, Woody Allen, Dick Gregory, Bill Cosby. But they don't talk about this generation that was just a hair before that. After vaudeville, but before coffee houses, of which Jack Carter was a part. Playing New York, Miami Beach. Uh, people talk about Las Vegas, but they don't talk about these other cities at the same time. Philadelphia, Chicago, Pittsburgh, uh, Atlantic City, Fort Lee, New Jersey. These were important hubs for uh, live show business, for singers, for dancers, and for comedians. And Jack Carter kind of filled in all those blanks for me. And I started investigating a lot of that stuff based on things that he had told me. And uh, through that and a lot of new internet archives, Google News Archives, archive.org, was able to kind of uh, uh, put together a framework and a context for this era of show business that hadn't really been documented properly. And a lot of that became the basis for my book. So Jack Hart is a good example of an interview that went well that led to uh, several more interviews. To this day, I've got like 300 pages of transcripts with him I've never done anything with, I've never published online. But online, I do have a 13-part interview with him published online that would take you days to read through. But if you read any of them at random, they're pretty interesting, even if you're not into uh, that subculture. Just the cadence and the, the manner of speech of Jack Carter is fascinating and it's funny and it's colorful far more so than he ever was on stage. On stage, he was kind of boring, but uh, uh, off stage, he was quite interesting. Wait, where can the interview be found? Oh, on my uh, old website, which is now just like an archaic-looking blog spot. 
called Classic Television Showbiz. Classicshowbiz.blogspot.com. Now I'm mostly on Twitter and Instagram as Classic Showbiz. Uh, uh, but the old website is still there, Classic Television Showbiz, and there's about, about 200 different interviews with elderly comedians or showbiz veterans, some who have long since died, like Sherwood Schwartz, the creator of Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch, um, Rip Taylor, you know, the man with the confetti. We, When I interview these people, I usually ask them about things people don't know. When I talked to Rip Taylor, we did not talk about the confetti. We talked about everything leading up to the confetti. He was a gay man in the closet at a time when being gay in show business was not particularly uh, common. So we talked about that. And we talked about his previous act before he had a mustache and a fright wig. He was called the crying comedian, Rip Taylor, the crying comedian. So, uh, but on classic television showbiz, there's all these interviews with these old guys talking about things and aspects of their career that people don't know about. And this is separate from the book. These uh, presumably extracts are in there, but this is all separate. It's all separate material. from the book. Yeah, the book is all 100% new material. There are uh, uh, many of the subjects that are online are also in the book, but the book is um, vastly more elaborate. The original book I pitched was about comedians and the mafia, because if you worked in a nightclub in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, nine times out of ten, your boss was the mafia. And that was true of singers, that was true of dancers, but it was especially true of comedians. And I always found that kind of fascinating because here your vocation is ridicule. And yet, if you accidentally uh, uh, mock the wrong person, either your boss or the boss's friend in the audience or maybe the mobster's mole, your life could be in danger. Quite literally, Jack Carter had stories of, of being threatened countless times by mobsters and this was true of, of many comedians of that era so i found that very interesting and that was my original premise for the book and all of that is in the book but my publisher actually asked me to write a broader book that went back further to the days of vaudeville and comes up more current to the era of podcasting so it's a it's a broad hundred year history of comedy that is uh, not boring i had made some very uh, serious editorial choices when i was writing it if something was historically significant but boring, I cut it out. And if something was less historically important but interesting, I put it in. So, for instance, Albert Brooks's father was a comedian named Harry Einstein. And Harry Einstein did a character named Parky Carcass on the Eddie Cantor show in the 1930s. And then he had his own sort of stupid little radio show called Meet Me at Parky's in the 40s. It was kind of juvenile. It wasn't sophisticated comedy. And then he had a spinal injury in the late 40s that almost crippled him for life. So in the 50s, he was relegated to just doing Friars Club roasts because he could sit at the dais, sit down, or he could lean on a podium when he performed. So that's all he really had the capacity to do because he was injured and he was, he was sickly at that point. Well, now, Parky Carcass, Harry Einstein, is not really a significant guy in the history of comedy, other than the fact that he gave birth to, or his wife gave birth to, Albert Brooks and his brother, Bob Einstein, best known as Marty Funkhauser on Curb Your Enthusiasm and Super Dave Osborne in the 80s. He and Albert Brooks are, are brothers. Wow, I did okay. not know that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that, but they are. They're brothers, and their father was also a comedian. Well, in 1958, Harry Einstein, the father of Bob Einstein and the father of Albert Brooks, was on a roast uh, uh, celebrating Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Uh, it was a 10th anniversary event for the Friars Club of California. It was held at the Beverly... Hilton, which is still there today, where they do the Golden, Golden Globes now. And Merv Griffin owned the Beverly Hilton for many years. Um, 
so he, he was doing this roast in 1958, and on the bill with him were Tony Martin, Milton Berle, George Burns. It was hosted by Art Linkletter. Milton Berle went up and killed. Then Harry Einstein, Park Your Carcass, went up, did an eight-minute set, destroyed the room, brought down the house, sat down at the dais, and in front of a 1,000 people dropped dead, face first into his food. And Milton Berle was sitting next to him, saw Harry Einstein turning purple, and yelled out into the audience, is there a doctor in the house? And everybody laughed because they thought he was joking. But he wasn't joking. Harry Einstein was dead. The father of Albert Brooks and Bob Einstein died after bringing down the house at a roast of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Now, even the event itself is not that important in the grand history of comedy. But the story is fascinating and interesting and hasn't been told. So that's in the book. Whereas something else maybe arguably is more historically important is not. But I definitely cut out a lot of stuff that is, has been covered countless times elsewhere. Some that I don't even think are significant, but that apparently other historians do. Like one of them is the longest laugh. They always say that Jack Benny got the longest laugh in the history of comedy because of his character was considered a penurious persona, a penny pincher. And on one episode, which they recreated several times after it became a famous joke, on one episode, uh, a mugger comes up to him on the street and puts a gun in his back and says, Hey, bud, your money or your life? And then there's this long pause because everybody knows Jack Benny is uh, penurious and would never give up a dollar. And so, your money or your life? And he doesn't say anything. So the audience starts laughing. And it's a huge, long laugh. And Jack Benny finally says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Well, now that story has been recounted in many books about Jack Benny and many books about radio and many books about comedy and many books about media. And they always underscore the fact that this was the longest laugh. But I've never understood, like, one, how you would calculate such a thing, and two, who gives a fuck? Like, why is that even relevant? And then if you go back and listen to the episode, it's really not that long of a laugh anyways, you know? You could probably listen to any comedy record, a stand-up recording, and find a laugh just as long. So it really doesn't matter. But for some reason, other historians out there in the past have considered this a really important thing to underscore. So that is a story and an anecdote and a thing that is not in my book because I think it's ultimately irrelevant, and also it's been told before. So with my book, I really, really tried to focus on stories that were not widely known and had not been covered in other books before that still were very interesting. And luckily I have a talent for sussing out stories that I think most people would find interesting. So the book is full of sex, it's full of violence, it's full of, uh, of uh, mafioso stories, near-death experiences, struggle, uh, and all through the ages. You know, there's lots in Larry David about my, in my book. There's lots about Larry David in my book. But it's all about Larry David in the 1970s, his stand-up career. And there's lots in my book about uh, John Stewart, but it's all about his stand-up career in the 1980s. Lots in there about Louis C.K., but it's all about his writing career working for Conan O'Brien. So they're all people that are popular and people are interested in now, but I'm telling the stories that maybe you don't know about. You know, Also, there's a big section in my book about Lorne Michaels, but that section and that story of Lorne Michaels ends in 1974 because we all know the SNL story. There's been lots of books about it, lots of very good books about it. But I really kind of tried to focus on telling the stories that hadn't been told before and then 
and co combining them all, creating a greater narrative to give you an overall overview and history of American comedy over the course of 100 years. Are there any particular comedians that you wanted to get that you couldn't get or essentially didn't, who didn't want to play ball at all, but you wrote about regardless? Uh, yeah, lots. In fact, almost all those people I just mentioned, I didn't actually get a, a first-hand interview with. Larry David did uh, contribute a photo to the book uh, of he and uh, Richard Lewis hanging out at the Playboy Club in the mid-70s with a bunch of Playboy bunnies. So that photo's in the book, and that Larry David gave, gave me that. But he didn't actually give me an interview. Um, some of these people I just assumed were a little bit inaccessible. I guess Lorne Michaels I did ask, and he said, no, he was too busy uh, uh, mounting the uh, anniversary season of SNL at the time that I asked. Yeah, there was plenty of people I didn't actually talk to firsthand, and there were lots that I did. Um, but nobody that was n not wanting to play ball, as you put it, nobody was hostile or, or, or uninterested in that that capacity. You know, I I'm lucky. I think most of the people that know who I am uh, in the comedy industry respect me. You know, maybe that's a pompous thing to say. I don't know, but I think I have the respect generally of uh, the comedy community. And most comedians themselves are fans of comedy and certainly fans of the generation of comedians that came before that inspired them to get into comedy. So for that very reason, I'm lucky to have a large audience of people in comedy who are interested in the in the backstory. You know, so Robert Smigel, when he was crafting Late Night with Conan O'Brien in 1993, worked hard to sort of pay homage to the late night talk show hosts that came before. So if you watch those early seasons of Conan O'Brien in the background on the wall, there's a photo of Jack Parr, there's a photo of Steve Allen, there's a photo of Johnny Carson, there's a photo of Ernie Kovacs, because he really was into the history of it. So when I interview people like Smigel, they're very excited to talk about this stuff and to talk about people like Nipsey Russell. Or when I talk to Steve Martin, he and I nerded out about a comedian named Jackie Vernon, who's kind of obscure now, but it was pretty hilarious in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, so... I'm lucky that way. Usually comedians want to talk about comedy. Now, one comedian who you're revered by is Mark Maron. Yes. And I'd like to know how it came about that you appeared on his podcast, WTF. Mark uh, had read my stuff online. I wrote for WFMU for 10 years. They just recently stopped doing their blog, their website. They just retired it. And I had been writing for them for a few years around the time that I stopped doing stand-up, around 2006. And I think the first article of mine that Mark read was about Shecky Green, I think. Um, he read it. He didn't know who I was at the time. But he did an episode of WTF. I think the guest was Chris Rock, that episode. So a lot of people heard it. And his opening monologue was all about Shecky Green. Mark said... I've been reading all weekend about Shecky Green. Shecky Green. I'm obsessed with Shecky Green. And he proceeded to tell this story about how he read this article on the WFMU blog and was totally hypnotized by it. And so that article gained a lot of traction because a lot of people tuned in to, to hear Chris Rock being interviewed. And they heard that opening monologue about Shecky Green and they sussed it out. So that was cool. A couple months later, I wrote an article for WFMU called The Schleppers um, about... I think it was called uh, The Schleppers, Stale Food and Stale Gags in Mid-Century Manhattan, which was all about the delicatessen culture 
of the 50s where comedians hung out. Lindy's, the stage delicatessen, Carnegie delicatessen, and another place called Hanson's Drugstore were all the loser comedians, the B-grade comedians, the struggling comedians, the guys who would never make it. What one old guy described to me as the poor man's friars club. Hanson's Drugstore described in detail in this article and sort of about the general desperation of struggling comedians in the 1950s. So Mark read that article. And again, he mentioned it in his opening monologue, and that's when he mentioned my name. He said, I just read this article called The Schleppers by Cliff Nestroff. Go read it. It's the best thing. I'm paraphrasing, but he was very effusive in his praise, and it uh, gained some traction. So on Twitter, people started tweeting at him, you should get that guy on the show. He'd make a good guess. You should get that guy on the show. So one day he emailed me, and he said, uh, would you be interested in doing the show? I was in Vancouver at the time just so happened that exact night Mark was doing a show in Vancouver and I said yeah I wouldn't mind doing it and actually I'm coming to your show tonight to watch it he was doing a live WTF with uh, Bob Odenkirk, David Cross Neil Brennan and somebody else I can't remember and he said uh, do you want to do the show tonight and I said uh, no no, because it was like two hours from showtime and I, I hadn't been on stage in five years and I didn't really want to go up on stage all of a sudden with, uh, with the, the, I did but I I couldn't, you know. I wasn't prepared. So anyways, he said, well, come to the show and, and let's meet. And so I came to the show, sat down with my date. And uh, before the show, everybody was kind of like settling into their seats in this theater. And Mark comes out on stage ahead of time and pipes into the microphone. He goes, paging Cliff Nestroff. Paging Cliff Nestroff. Where is this guy? I want to meet this guy. And this big, fat slob of a man was walking down the aisle with like five bags of popcorn and 12 Cokes. And Mark goes, are you Cliff Nestroff? And the guy goes, no, no, no. And so my girl that I was with threw my arm up, you know, and she goes, here he is, you know. And so I went up there, and uh, Mark's like, you're Cliff? Cool. Come backstage. Let's chat. So he sits me down. He goes, uh, listen, man, that article you wrote about Shecky Green, holy fuck, where'd you get that shit? That was, and that article, The Schleppers, have you been talking to people? Like, that shit should be a movie. That shit should be a movie. Have you been taking meetings? Have you talked to Stiller? I'll talk to Stiller for you. We've got to turn that into a movie. Who's your agent? You got an agent? I said, yeah, I got this bum agent, but this book deal I had here in Canada just fell through. He goes, dude, we got to get you a proper agent. I'll hook you up with my agent, you know. Well, when you come down to Los Angeles next time, we'll get you on the mics. So that's exactly what happened. About six months later, I was in town. He booked me on the show. Uh, we recorded it, in, an, I think, in April. And then the turnaround time was it came out in September. And we talked about my stand-up career and then the articles that I'd been writing and, and, and some of the stories that, uh, that I found compelling, my experiences with Shecky Green and Jack Carter and these old-school guys and uh, some of the stories about comedians in the mafia. And uh, we talked a little bit about Pigmeat Markham, a black comedian from that era. And uh, it went over very well. I wasn't sure if people would care or if they'd be interested or if it would have been just boring uh, navel-gazing. But it apparently went over very well because uh, after it came out, I got uh, a slew of emails and a pick of agents, 10 different agents, and I finally just settled on Mark's agent who uh, represented uh, uh, comedians who did uh, books. So Patton Oswalt's recent book put together by the same guy who put together my book, the same agent. Uh, he did all the books for The Onion when they put out books. You know, He was a comedy book agent. He was other people's agents too. He's also uh, Chuck Klosterman's agent. So he's a big guy and uh, got me a book deal out of it. He said, do you have any ideas for books? And I pitched a few ideas, settled on the idea about comedians in the mafia in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. I had a meeting with Random House, one with Penguin, one with Grove Press. 
Grove Press was uh, most interested, uh, gave us the best terms, and then my agent went and negotiated. He said, congratulations, you got yourself a book deal. I'll have a contract ready in like four weeks. Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks come and go. I go, what the fuck? Did it fall apart? Because I'd had book deals in the past that had fallen apart, you know. So I emailed my agent. I go, what's going on there? He goes, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I go, that doesn't sound good. I'm working on it. What does that mean? Finally, I think like five months later, I get a contract in the mail. And I look at it, and I can see all the things that are scratched out in pen that my agent changed. For five months, he had been negotiating on my behalf. He got me four times the amount of money they offered and full creative control. So that's all thanks to Mark Marin that I got that agent and that I got that book deal. And uh, so the book is actually dedicated to Mark Marin for that reason. It says, dedicated to Mark M., thanks for the boost, because it really helped me immensely. And put me in contact with a lot of important industry people, a guy who I'm working on a TV pilot with now all these years later. First contacted me back then. He's a fellow who introduced me to Albert Brooks, this fellow Howard, who's a veteran TV writer, who his first job in the industry was writing the Andy Kaufman episodes of Taxi. And uh, after I did that show, uh, collectors sent me all kinds of rare comedy stuff, including the audio of that night I just told you about in which Harry Einstein performed at the roast and died on stage. Somebody sent me the audio of that. Wow. Uh, Some guy in Florida had it. And all kinds of other cool, weird comedy things, a very rare TV special called Comedian Backstage from 1963, a black and white cinema verite profile of Shelley Berman. Uh, that Shelley Berman says ruined his career, but it has never been seen since 63. Somebody sent me that. Just all kinds of cool uh, audio and video, very rare stuff um, from people that heard that episode of Mark Marin. So for me, doing that appearance on WTF was very uh, important and seminal, and it totally sent my uh, career into a, a, another echelon. And then I talked to other kind of nobodies who had done uh, WTF and, uh, and their experience w- was not that at all. I told them about all this great stuff that happened for me, and they're like, what? Nothing happened for me. Nobody even heard it. And I was like, oh, well. So I kind of liken it to the days of Johnny Carson in the 70s and 80s when a stand-up comedian could do one shot like David Brenner or Louis Anderson or Roseanne or Stephen Wright and become, you know, get all this gravy from it the next day. And then there's other people like Bill Maher and Jerry Seinfeld who did Johnny Carson 30 times and it didn't affect their career at all. They just headlined, but they didn't get anything out of it. So I guess a big chunk of it was luck, but uh, doing his show was immeasurably beneficial for me and my career. Well, by the time this recording comes out as well, you'll be on to your book tour. Yes. And presumably doing a number of podcasts along the way as well. Yeah, I'm booked for a bunch. Um, I'm not really in charge of the itinerary. My, uh, uh, I have an American publicist and a Canadian publicist assigned to me by Grove Press, and uh, they're kind of in charge of lining them up, so I don't want to speak before I do them. I'm not sure that I, I'll be on all of them, but apparently I'm supposed to be doing, uh, well, I'll be doing Marin's show again. I'll be doing uh, Dana Gould's podcast, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, Keith and the Girl, uh, uh, a bunch of NPR shows. A bunch of smaller podcasts as well, like uh, Nick Yusuf's podcast, and uh, I think I'm doing Tom Sharpling's program, and Frank Conniff from uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, his show when I'm in New York. So quite a lot of shows lined up, podcasts, but I, I'm, we're recording this before I do them, so who's to say that I'll be on any of them? I'm not sure. Well, either way, people should certainly look out for you on those uh 
an investigation. To see. In any case, people should uh, order a copy of The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy by Cliff Nesteroff. Podcast or not? Yes, indeed. No podcast is needed to purchase the book. No podcast necessary. Although, based on what you've just said, it certainly helped the book along the way. Yeah, it's it's a, such an important uh, part of the promotion train now, you know. And it's interesting because people listen to podcasts at their own speed, you know. I'm doing all these podcasts in uh, in uh, November, the same month as the book release. But, I mean, I'm sure some people will be listening to them a year after the fact, you know. Uh, in a way, that's kind of good, you know. So it could be staggered. Sales could be staggered but steady as opposed to a TV shot. You do it once and then it's gone. Do you listen to other podcasts? Do you get the time to listen to other podcasts? Uh, I, I do and I don't. I feel like there's uh, almost too many to listen to. Uh, I listen to uh, a lot of podcasts of my friends, you know, to support them. My friend Sarah Bino does a podcast in Vancouver called Say Wah. And my friend Graham Clark does a podcast in Vancouver called Stop Podcasting Yourself, which is extremely popular and extremely funny. Have you heard it? I've heard of it. I haven't heard it. Oh, you should listen to it. It's hilarious. You should listen to both of those podcasts, Sewa and Stop Podcasting Yourself. They're both funny. I listen to Marin's show uh, when I have the chance, although I haven't listened to one since he interviewed uh, Barack Obama. That was the last one I heard. And uh, frankly, I think my episode was much more interesting than the interview with the President of the United States. And uh, a lot more sex and violence in my episode, too. And drug use. So that, that always helps, you know. And hopefully some more sex, violence, and drug use in the upcoming WTF as well. In my upcoming appearance, yeah, I don't know what we'll talk about. Uh, I mean, i got lots to talk about. Lots has happened since uh, the last time I appeared on Mark's show. I've actually been on Mark's show again since. I can't remember who the other guest was on that episode. It may have been Adam Carolla. I can't remember. But when I was doing some live shows here in Los Angeles at the Cine Family, I'd go to Mark's studio to plug them and promote them. So I was on his show to promote a show I did with Mel Brooks and I was on a show to promote a show I did with uh, George Schlatter, live shows here in town Well, thank you for this, this interview and the things I'm taking from it are research, listening and essentially being prepared Be prepared, yeah I mean, and you'll be able to read your subjects within the first five minutes whether it's going to be a difficult interview or an easy interview if you ask one question and they talk for five minutes, you're home free. If you ask one question and they, they don't say anything after five seconds, then that's when your preparation may be uh, necessary. Well, I think I was lucky in this case. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a, a loud mouth. You know. I well, like being on a microphone, though. You know, it's, it's fun. I don't do stand-up anymore, so whenever I get to uh, uh, wrap my fist around the, the microphone, it's a very uh, comforting uh, uh, feeling. It's like holding my dick. You know, it's like just uh, very enjoyable. And on that bombshell, Cliff, thank you very much. Thank you, George. See you again. Once again, I'd like to thank Cliff Nesteroff for joining us on our first ever episode of Pod Pit, the podcast about podcasts. And as I said at the beginning of the show, please do go out and buy his amazing book, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, available on Amazon and at all good bookstores. Once again, I'd like to say thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully, as we go along, we'll provide some insight, not just from people who have had their own personal experiences with podcasting as hosts, as guests, and as people behind the scenes, but also 
we would like to provide some sort of guide as well if you want to get involved in podcasting. So if you have any questions or queries or would like to get in touch or would like to be on the show, www.podnose.com is the site and the email address is admin at podnose.com. So thanks for listening and we will see you again on the next episode of PodPit. Bye for now. PodPit is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network. Hosted, edited and produced by George Grimwood. Visit us at www.podnose.com and get in touch via admin at podnose.com. Podnose.